Well, good morning. Hope we're able to sing that together as we sing the words of the songs. I pray we understand when we sing, Jesus, I'm so in love with you. He loves us. He loved us first, as Ryan said. That's a great, great song. So happy that you're here. I, I hope you had a blessed Thanksgiving weekend. I hope it was filled with Thanksgiving things, you know, family and friends and football and maybe a nap or two, some shopping sprinkled in there somewhere. No matter how you spent your weekend, we're so glad that you came to be part of worship here at Cape Bible Chapel today. We're really, really blessed to be with you. My name is James, and if you're visiting with us, we're in the middle of this study on discipleship. We've been looking at that biblical command, the mandate to make disciples who make disciples. And last week, we looked at a little bit of a manual from the Apostle Paul as he was discipling a young pastor named Timothy. And there are two big parts to that manual, if you remember, things that we need to do as we begin this process of making disciples. And the first was you need to be strong. Be strong in the grace that is in God through Jesus Christ, not trying to be strong enough on our own, not man up, you know, or cowboy up or cowgirl up or whatever it is. We won't be able to be that strong on our own, but just being strong through God's empowering grace. And then the second part was entrusting. It was that idea of entrusting valuable information. And we kind of made the links that it's, it's entrusting your life, it's sharing your life with faithful people who are going to walk along with you and they'll be equipped and then they'll be able to go repeat that process over and over again. So since we know those two things, I want to spend a little time today and really over the next few weeks looking at examples of how that process plays out practically. Paul's given us a manual here. We want to see, does he follow his own manual? What are the methods that he uses as he lives his life alongside somebody? And so today we're going to look at Paul and Timothy for that. And we'll check out other examples from Scripture over the next few weeks. But to start out today, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 8. Now, we're going to be all over the Scriptures today, so we're going to put the verses up on the screen to try and stay ahead. But go ahead and turn to that first verse, if you would, because I think in this verse what we really see is the essence of how Paul does discipleship. It's in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He writes, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd become very dear to us. See, Paul loved people, and he wanted them to know Jesus. He wanted the best for them. So that he didn't you know, just travel around and then try and gather a big crowd and then throw down some teaching and then sprint. Here in Thessalonica, everywhere he went, he engaged with people. He got to know them. He went to this church probably about 51 or 52 A.D. He established this on his second missionary journey. And now he met Timothy probably on his first missionary journey. If you go back and read the introduction of Thessalonians, Timothy's in there. So Paul's already doing ministry with him. And what you see here is this is his pattern for discipleship. This is how he does ministry. And with all the letters, Paul will write back to the churches. It doesn't matter if there's moral decay swirling around. It doesn't matter if these folks are really struggling. He'll write how thankful he is to God for those people. And then at the end of the letters, he'll single some folks out. Hey, these are folks I had really special relationships with. So you know Paul's investing in these people. Almost all his letters look like that, with the exception of Galatians. Church in Galatia gets a pretty harsh letter because they abandoned the message and the faith so quickly. We're going to get to that in January. We're going to start walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Galatians. So Paul's embarking on these long missionary journeys, and I said it's probably on his first journey that he met Timothy. Now that journey started out in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are together, and Barnabas' cousin John Mark is with him. We know him as Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And they sail down to Cyprus. And they walk along Cyprus, and then they sail north up to an area named Perga. 
And this is where Paul hits his first big trial. John Mark leaves. He just splits. He heads back to Jerusalem. And so this is a hardship that Paul has to endure, but he keeps going on. And he and his group travel north, and they go to Iconium, and then they go to Lystra. And that's probably where Paul meets this young guy, Timothy. Now, did I mention he was encountering some opposition along the way? Lystra is also where Paul gets stoned to death. At least the people from Antioch and Iconium who went over there to stone him, they think they've killed him. But instead, Paul gets up. And miraculously enough, he kind of retraces the steps of his journey. He goes back through those areas. So when Paul talks in Scripture about enduring hardship, when he talks about being strong, he gets it. He knows what he's talking about. And I said last week, Paul reminds us, we have to be strong in God's grace if we're going to deal with external trials or we're going to deal with internal trials. Now, Paul knows about external trials. On this trip alone, John Mark deserts him, and he gets stoned half to death. You read through the New Testament, there's tons of things. Sometime this week, go back and read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a great chapter where Paul defends his apostleship. But in verses 23 to 27, he summarizes the trials he's had. And it's a pretty impressive list, not for Paul. Imprisonment, lashings, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, lost at sea, harassed by his own people, harassed by foreigners, hungry, sleep-deprived, out in the elements. All these trials. And then he says this in verse, uh, pardon me, chapter 11 and verse 28 of 2 Corinthians. He says, apart from all those external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. It's like he's not even worried about being stoned to death. His heart is for these people. He says, who is weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? Hey, yeah, sure, I've been almost stoned to death. I've been beaten to death five times, almost dead. But but those things don't really compare to these internal struggles because I love these people. I want more for these people than they want for themselves. Paul wanted to see God's church established and flourishing. And the way he was going to know it was flourishing was that people were pouring into people. They were being strong and entrusting valuable information. And he wanted that so bad that it hurt when somebody left. Or it hurt when somebody was struggling or somebody was in sin. But that's what a life of discipleship is going to look like for us. If we're sharing our lives with people, we're going to hurt when they hurt. If we're not doing that, then do we really care if people are hurting? We're just glad it's not us. I remember the first guy who truly discipled me. My buddy David Goss, he's still my best friend to this day. He walked with me when I was just exploring a relationship with Christ. I didn't even know Christ yet. But he encouraged with me. And, and really, he put up with me just being clueless. And I think it's because he saw some promise in me. And I think it's because he loved me and he wanted more for me. But what he did was he went about this process of developing a relationship with me. He showed that he cared about me as a person. And along the way, he earned my trust for sure. One of the things I remember him doing, one of the the very first memories I have with David, he said, hey, I want to take you to a football game. I said, sure, let's go. Where are we going? He said, Pittsburgh, Kansas. I was like, okay, that's six hours away. He goes, yeah. He goes, go home and get like a dark green jacket or a sweatshirt on or something and put on some khaki pants. I'll come get you and we're going to go to this game. So I went home and thankfully I had a dark green jacket and, and I get dressed up and he comes, he shows up and he's wearing the same thing I'm wearing, you know. And so we get in the car and we take off and I ask what I think is a pretty good question at the time. I was like, hey, do you have tickets for this game? He's like, oh no, we don't need tickets. We're going to Pittsburgh, Kansas for a Division II college playoff game. 
It's a national playoff game. Pittsburgh, Kansas is where Pittsburgh State is, the Pittsburgh Gorillas. And they were this perennial Division II powerhouse. And they were going to play Northwest Missouri State. And now Northwest Missouri State had a coach named Mel Churchma. He was my buddy David's college coach, a little, coach, a little college down in, in Texas. And so that's our plan. We're going to go, and, and his deal is, hey, we're going to go stand at the fence, and I'm going to get Coach Churchma's attention, and he's going to wave us in, and we're going to stand on the sideline. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, and we get there, and it was a tiny stadium, and it's just packed. Tickets were unobtainable. But guess where I watched the game from? Standing right there on the sideline. Somehow his plan worked. He got this guy's attention, and he waved us in, and there we stood on the sideline for the whole game. It was such a great experience. I mean, Northwest won, and we had a good time. And I know my buddy David wanted to go to the game, and he wanted to see his college coach. But for sure, he was investing in me. He was intentional with me. We had 12 hours in the car together, and we're hanging out. And he's building relationship with me. And I remember that because about six months later, he came to me, and he asked, hey, do you want to go with me to a week of Young Life camp? You can be a leader with a cabin of guys at Young Life camp. And I was a very, very new believer at the time. And I said, hey, what does that look like? I've never even been, you know. And so he explains to me what goes on at Young Life camp. And then he really scared me. He said, and then every night somebody comes and they present the gospel really clearly. And you're going to go back with this cabin of high school kids, and you're going to lead cabin time. And you're going to sit and talk about what you guys just heard. And you're going to share your life with these kids. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I am so unqualified to do that. And I remember asking him, still clearly to this day, I asked him this question. You know, I was like, you know, what if they ask about ridiculous stuff that I've done? At the time, I was, I was a recovering alcoholic very recently. And I was like, what if they ask you know, if I've ever gotten drunk? I said, what should I do, just lie to him? And he was so patient with me. I remember him going, yeah, that's probably not what we're going to do. <laughs> probably not going to lie to the kids. But that was my question. The fact that God has me in ministry today just blows my mind. But I went ahead and did it. I went to camp, and I didn't lie to those kids. And a couple years later, God put me on Young Life staff. A couple years later, I ended up on staff here at the chapel, totally because of God's sovereign call on my life. I understand that but in large part because my buddy David discipled me. David lived his life with me, walked alongside me. He still does to this day. And what he was doing was equipping me to be faithful, to join God in ministry. We've got to be asking questions like that as we look around. Are we looking for people, even unlikely people like myself, to be pouring into that God would have us live our lives with today? The Apostle Paul was looking for that. He lived his life with Timothy. Now, I think for sure, Timothy was a little more likely candidate for ministry than I was. Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. We don't know from Scripture if Timothy's dad was a Christ follower, but we do read that his mother Eunice was, his grandmother Lois was. They were both known in Scripture for their sincere faith. And I said, Paul most likely met Timothy on that first missionary journey to Lystra, and we don't know for sure if Paul led Timothy to the Lord. We really don't, and it, it doesn't matter so much. We do know in Scripture that Paul knew those Old Test or Timothy knew those Old Testament Scriptures. But whether Timothy was a Christ follower before he met Paul or not, it's really not that important. What is neat is that somehow Paul looked at Timothy and he recognized potential in him for ministry. He saw promise in him. We actually see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul's right, and he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son... It's in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, 
Now, we don't know who made the prophecies. We really don't know when. But by Paul ministering alongside Timothy, by them doing life together, Paul had this opportunity to develop confidence in Timothy. Because specifically, Timothy was going to be the one who was going to stand up to false teaching in the church in Ephesus. So he has a call in his life for ministry. Well, that call was reinforced by Paul, the guy who's discipling him. And so they end up actually ministering together. And Timothy's proving himself. And he's no longer just a guy along for the ride. He's not Paul's assistant or his traveling buddy. Now they're co-laborers. Now they're working together. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 10. Paul says, If Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work, as I also am. Paul says, we're in this together. See that same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. We sent Timothy, he's our brother. He's God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen you and encourage you as to your faith. So that's the process. Paul starts out and Timothy's just along for the ride. And then he starts pouring into him. He begins to disciple him. And Timothy becomes equipped. And now he's going forward in ministry. And then he goes out on his own. He becomes Paul's faithful representative, his messenger. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. Paul wants to check on the church in Philippi, but he can't because he's in prison in Rome. So who does he send? He writes, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. There's Paul and Timothy doing life together. They minister together. They walk together for a long way. By the end of Paul's life, they become so close that when Paul knows he's nearing the end, he makes an appeal for Timothy to come and be with him. He loves him so much. It's at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. You see it in verses 9, verse 21. He writes, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. He writes again in verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. Timothy, I've loved you. I've poured my life into you. Now you're out ministering, and it's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard work there in Ephesus. And I want to encourage you, but now the end of my life is coming. And you're so dear to me. I've shared my life with you. Please come be with me just one more time. That's a big picture of the method that Paul is using to disciple Timothy. And it's so effective that at the end of his life, he's become so dear, he wants to see him just one more time. We understand that, don't we? That the people we do life with, we're going to get close to them. Now you have to ask a question, is there a reason that Paul and Timothy got so close? Well, in our lives, who do we hang out with? I mean, we probably know this from personal experience. Most of the time, we hang out with people who are a little like us. I wish that wasn't always the case. Sometimes I think we really need to be challenged to branch out. But for a lot of us, that's what we do. And I think you get a sense of that with Paul and Timothy. I think... 2 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 7 is a little bit of a clue to that. Paul's writing, and he says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And this is that passage where Paul is asking Timothy to rekindle his ministry gifts, rekindle the passion he has for joining God in ministry. And in it, he instructs Timothy not to be timid. Now, why would he give that particular instruction? I think maybe it's because Paul's seen that in himself before. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. He writes, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He says, I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. See, Paul writes tough when he's not with you. But when he's there, he must have been a little timid in your presence. Now, of course, we see that God doesn't allow that to stop Paul from having a huge impact for the Lord. 
Well, then Paul's out, and he sees this guy, Timothy, and he's fearfully and wonderfully made a little bit like Paul. And Paul knows, hey, I needed encouragement along the way, and so now he's going to encourage Timothy. Don't let that timidity be a hindrance to your ministry. Sadly, most of the time, we don't need much of a hindrance to stop our ministry. What we need sometimes is a little prodding along the way. It's nice if you know somebody who's been there before and they'll kind of put their hand in the small of your back and walk along with you and guide you as you go. I think that's part of the method that Paul uses to disciple Timothy. He prods him along just a little bit. I thought about that this week. I'm not a big horseman. I've really only been on a horse a handful of times in my life, but I really like horses because they're just beautiful. They're just majestic animals. I remember the very first time I ever rode a horse, it was when my buddy David asked me to go to Young Life Camp. And one of the things you'd do, you'd take your cabin of guys up, and there was this horse wrangling area there, and they'd let you go out on a trail ride. And it was great. It was a, it was a pretty long ride, and you got to gallop the horse back in. When you first get there, they split you up into groups, and they have advanced riders and intermediate riders and beginning riders. And most of the folks were in the beginning riders. But I remember sitting there, and I was, I was in the beginning group, never been on a horse before, and here's the couple advanced riders. And, and the ranch hands are talking to them, and they give you some safety instructions and a helmet, and then they start bringing out these horses. And the advanced horses were just beautiful. I mean, they were just majestic looking, and they had these great names. Be like, bring out lightning, bring out threat and bullet and zippy and all, you know, I mean, just these great names, you know. And I was over here in the beginner group, and they're giving us the instructions, and they kind of size you up, and they're like, bring out pokey. <laughs> Why don't you bring gumdrop out for this? You know? <laughs> and so it was kind of embarrassing to be in that group. It's a true story. The first year I was in that group, I, I moved to the intermediate group the next year because I was out there, and they kind of sized me up, and they said, bring out precious. And I'm, I, I was bigger than this horse. This is not a big horse. And so, so they brought out Precious, and, and I had to ride her. And, and that's not something you want hanging out with you when you're with a group of high school kids for a week. I didn't live that down for the year, I think. So, so you go out with this group, and you're on the horses, and the advanced horses, man, they love it. You, they don't want to be on the trail ride. You know that. They want to be out running free. They live for the, that last part when they gallop home. But with the beginning horses, me and you know, Precious, Precious would have rode that trail if I didn't hold the reins. I'm positive. <laughs> All he wanted to do is just walk along. But it came to the end, which was the exciting part, where you get to gallop home. And I mean, with the advanced horses, just one little kick, you know, nudge, and you're off. But with Precious, I was, <laughs> I was digging in. I literally wish I had spurs on, that, that idea of prodding the horse along. Because those beginning horses, for some reason, they were a little timid. And they needed that encouragement. And I think that's what we see Paul doing with Timothy. Timothy was just a little timid, and so Paul spurs him on as a method of encouragement. You actually see this over and over again in the letters. He does it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, chapter 4 and verse 11, chapter 5 and verse 7, chapter 6 and verse 2, the same thing. You see it years later in 2 Timothy. Paul's still using this tactic. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 and in verse 5. He's spurring him on. He's prodding him on. And I love this one in particular, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says, You, Timothy, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. Paul's saying, Hey, this is me. You know me. I've poured into your life. Don't shrink away. Don't be timid. Keep fulfilling your ministry opportunity. Get in there, Timothy. I believe in you. So Paul's method of discipleship involved living his life alongside Timothy. Being transparent, he had to have struggled 
hey, I've struggled with timidity before too. He was real with it. And he just walks with him. He's somebody who who is kind of like him, and he knows that he needs that consistent encouragement. It's in that particular area, that discipling method of encouragement, that I want to take the rest of our time today. I want to look at a specific passage. It launches out of that passage that we looked at last week in 2 Timothy. So if you would, navigate over there or flip over there in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 3 through 10. This is in that section where Paul's just told Timothy, be strong. And Paul's not going to be one of those guys who says, be strong, good luck, God bless you, and then he's out. Paul doesn't say, hey, yeah, it's going to be tough. Go get him, tiger. You know, he, he engages here. He's entrusted Timothy. He knows that Timothy's going to be faithful, but now he wants to keep equipping him. Something this week reminded me of this. We have this incredible new commercial kitchen here at the chapel, but none of us know how to use it. <laughs> like I walked in there the first time, I literally didn't know what half the stuff was. I'd never seen it before. We have this great blessing. A good friend of mine, Joel Nykirk, he came in and he did like a kitchen training event for us, for some of the staff guys and deacons and, and ladies on the women's ministry and folks around this kitchen committee. He came in and he shared his knowledge because he has a servant's heart and he knows how this stuff works. And he followed this process. The first thing we did, honestly, was we got around a table and Joel got out a manual. And he talked us through the manual. And we got done with that. He got us up and he walked us through the kitchen. And he showed us every piece of equipment back there and how it worked. And then, as if he hadn't gone above and beyond already, he said this, and I love that. He said, hey, here's the deal. The first couple times you use this thing, if I'm in town... I'll, I'll come show you how to do it. He said, I'll come and I'll just put my hand there and small your back and I'll guide you along as you go. He was discipling us in that because we want to be good stewards here at the church of this incredible blessing. I think Joel did what Paul was doing in 2 Timothy. Paul didn't want to just throw it out there and say, hey, Timothy, be strong, especially to a guy who struggles with timidity and then walk away. Paul wants to come along and encourage Timothy even further. So as a practical way to do this, to help him be strong, to help him entrust valuable information to faithful people, Paul gives him four tangible examples to remember. He says, be strong, but when you're having a hard time being strong, remember these four things. The first one is in verses 3 to 4, 2 Timothy 2. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Why? so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, there's one important thing here first, because Paul tells Timothy first, endure hardship with me. We saw this earlier. Paul was a guy who knew a thing or two about hardship. He'd been through a bunch in his day. And I don't think he's saying, hey, just endure hardship to prove how strong you are. Because Paul understands the role of trials in our lives. He gets the idea that we're supposed to be developing endurance and perseverance and character so we can be mature and complete. Those things have a real purpose in God's economy. So what Paul wants is to make sure Timothy doesn't try to avoid hardship or just try to fix hardship. Because I think we can fall into those traps pretty quickly. Something comes up in our life, whatever it is, and it's hard, and so we just punt. (laughs) We don't want to engage in that. But what if that's the thing God was going to use to teach us something really valuable? Have you seen this in your life where that thing will circle back around and it'll show up again, maybe in a different way? And you'll have to make that choice. Am I going to avoid that again? Or am I going to learn from it? 
Because God's trying to, to put something in our life that'll help us to mature. Sometimes we try to avoid situations. Other times, I know I make this mistake, we just try to fix them. I think guys notoriously want to do this. We want to be fixers. Somebody comes in and shares something with us. They're struggling with something. And we go, oh, that's easy. Just do this. Just do this one thing. Just do it this way, and that'll fix that. And sure, it may fix it for us. But I guarantee we don't know everything there is to know about that situation. We don't know everything there is to know about that person. That may be something they've struggled with for years, and they've come in and dropped it in our lap, and we gave them a five-second fix-it like they were dumb, like they shouldn't have been struggling with it in the first place. That's, it's not exceptionally encouraging. It's not even helpful. I don't know that we're supposed to run around trying to fix things because as I get older, I'm more and more convinced of this. As my kids get older, I realize this. I can't fix some things. And God doesn't need me to fix everything. There's going to be certain things I just can't fix. There's going to be certain people I just can't fix. I can't fix myself. But in the midst of those hardships, here's the deal. Can I learn something? Can I grow in my endurance, or my faithfulness, or my prayer life? My ability to see what God is up to and trust Him that He's in control of all things? We're not supposed to avoid or fix hardships. We're supposed to endure them for God's glory. And so Paul says that, suffer hardship with me. And then he tells Timothy, do it like a soldier. And I think what Paul is telling Timothy here is, life is like a war. When we're at war, we have an enemy. You understand that, right? And so we ask, do we have an enemy in this life? Yes. <laughs> for sure we do. We have two enemies. Satan is our real enemy. If we're a Christ follower, he's our enemy. He's the prince of this world. He's the father of lies. More than anything, he hates that we have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus. So he's our enemy. Now, praise God, he is a defeated enemy. But even though he's defeated, God allows him to, to flick at us. He allows him to mess with us a little bit, and Satan delights in it. He loves it. Shared that verse last week in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and he takes his job very seriously. So we have an external enemy, but then we also have an internal enemy called our flesh. It's our sin nature. It's that gift we received from Adam. He got it back in the garden. He re-gifted it. Because of it, we're going to struggle. Like folks have struggled throughout the history of time because in all situations, we're going to be looking out for number one. We're going to put ourselves first. That's why Jesus tells us over and over in the Gospels, you got to die to yourself. you got to die to yourself. So we're at war. We have these enemies. And Paul tells Timothy to be strong Remember the soldier. He says, Timothy, you need to go to war. In a war, the soldier on the front line, he doesn't get distracted by the everyday things of his life. He instead is focusing on the fight. And in the war, the soldier stays in the battle till the end. You stay in the battle until your enemy is defeated or dead, or you're dead trying. And this is how Timothy is spurring, or Paul's spurring Timothy on. He's encouraging him by saying, hey, you've got to stay in the fight till the end. And I think maybe specifically he's looking at that ministry in Ephesus saying, I know that's hard. Combating false teaching is hard, but you've got to stay in this till the end. Be strong. Remember how the soldier does it. Be courageous. Be faithful. And he reminds him, it's God that's enlisted you as a soldier. And now you have this ministry to fulfill. And so Paul's encouraging him, don't be timid. Fight the good fight. Then Paul gives Timothy another example in verse 5. He says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize 
unless he competes according to the rules. Now, this is a little bit of common sense, but if you're truly going to compete in a sport, you should know the rules. And you should know who's in charge of administering the rules. I coach my little boy, Trace's t-ball team, and then last year it was coach's pitch, and this next year I think they'll get to throw a little bit. And it's been a great joy. It's fun. Lord willing, I'll keep doing it for a long time. But, but over the last couple years, I mean, these kids are six and seven years old. They don't know many of the rules. They don't know what position to play. They, they really don't know where to throw the ball if they get it coming to them. And so they don't know the rules. And so it's been okay up to this point. I mean, we also don't keep scores. <laughs> it really doesn't matter who wins. You know. so, so I've been a little lax on making sure they understand the rules. But this year, I think they're going to start keeping score. And so I'm going to have to be a little bit more adamant about saying, hey, you've got to get this. You've got to know the rules. Now, th- this happened in our league this year. Normally in our league, if a kid hits the ball in the air and folks are on base, they just run because they don't need to know the rule about, hey, if they catch a fly ball, you've got to tag up and advance, you know, because nobody in our league catches the ball. <laughs> so, so the ball's hit in the air and they just take off running. You know? Well, one time this year, a kid did catch the ball. My little buddy Nate Roth was out there, and he was playing center field for the Iron Pigs. The kid on the blue Wahoos just crushes the ball, and Nate goes back on it, and he sticks his glove up, and he stabs the liner out of the air. He catches it. Well, then sadly, just all bedlam broke loose because nobody knew what to do. <laughs> Nate was sitting there looking at his glove in amazement. He was like, wow, this is incredible. And there's a kid who had been on third base for the Wahoos. Well, he's already in the dugout. He's high-fiving his buddies. He thinks he's scored a run. His coach is trying to get him to come back to go to third. It didn't work. You know? Now, here's the deal. It was an imaginary run because we don't keep score. But, but that kid's run didn't count because he didn't compete according to the rules. He didn't tag up and advance. Here's the deal. Serious athletes, competitive athletes, when they play a sport, they should know the rules. And they should know that there's a difference between the umpires or the officials or the referees or whatever and the players. The umpires and the refs, they don't actually play in the game. They're not supposed to. I, I did have a buddy, I won't tell you his name, it was an embarrassing story, but I did have a buddy who, he was coaching kids about Trace's age. He was coaching a little church league basketball, and they made it to the, the finals of this church league basketball deal, and they're playing on this other team's court, and he, he seriously thought he was getting jobbed by the referees. He thought they were kind of favoring the home team. And so at halftime, he comes in and he talks to his kids and he sends them out there for the second half and the other team has the ball and they're dribbling down the court and all five of his guys are guarding the referees. He's got three of them on one referee and two of them on the other referee and they're following the referees down the court. <laughs> the referee doesn't know what's going on and he gets down to the end and he stops play and he turns to the one little kid. He's like, what are you doing? This little kid had been coached so well by my buddy. He goes, coach just said to come out here and guard the guys who are killing us the most. But that's not normally how it works. Normally, the referee doesn't play in the game. They've got a different role, you understand. And normally, the referee, they're in control. They're sovereign over that. You ever seen that? You're watching basketball on TV or you're watching a game live, and a guy just hacks a guy. And almost always this happens. The referee will call the foul. Hey, foul on number 23. And the guy will get that face. What? No, no. And they go to the referee. I didn't foul him. Have you ever seen the referee go, what? Oh, wait, you didn't foul him? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I t- no foul on 23. He says he didn't do it. It doesn't work that way. The referees, the officials, the umpires, they're sovereign in there. They get to administer the rules. Well, we need to understand that 
as we live our lives in Christ, we've got to ask, do we know the rules? And do we know who's responsible for administering them? It's God. If we're not aware of the rules, there's some big rule books there in your pews. They're black, they're hardbound. You're going to want to get one of those. Fascinating stuff in there. We need to know the rules. I think Paul is telling Timothy, there's a lot to be learned from understanding as an athlete, you want to compete and win, and you want to do it according to the rules. Now, when he talks about competing, I think, again, we watch a game on TV or we go to a game, and we only see a fraction of what's really going on. Did you watch some football over the weekend? There's some great football games. You watch the game, and the guys on the offensive line, the defensive line, they just sit and beat on each other for 60 minutes. Well, that's great. We get to see that part. But what we don't see is videotape of them in the weight room all during the week working out so they're able to endure that kind of beating they take. We don't see that part. We always see the part there at the end of the game where the guy's on the free throw line. There's .7 seconds left, and he's there, and he's ready, and he's got to sink the free throw to win the game. See, we love that. We love to watch that. We don't see him in the gym for hours during the week shooting hundreds, maybe thousands of free throws to prepare for that moment. I think it's weird because for some of us, I've been guilty of this, we seem to kind of idolize athletes, but then we don't want to imitate them. We don't imitate the athletes very well because serious competitive athletes train. They discipline themselves. They eat right and they sleep and they they work out hard because they know when that time comes, that's how they're going to win the prize. We seem to love their performance, but I know for myself, sometimes I loathe the discipline. Paul's telling Timothy, hey, if you want to endure, you want to be strong. You want to have the discipline in your life of an athlete. And you've got to know the rules. You've got to know who's in charge. And then when you do, you can compete with all you've got to win the prize. Paul encouraging Timothy, be strong. Be strong like the soldier. Remember the athlete. And then next he says, remember the farmer. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Sometimes I think we like to identify with the soldier. We think that's a neat idea. We fight till the battle's won. Some of us as former athletes, we like to identify with the athlete who could train hard and compete according to the rules to win the prize. But this one may be tougher to identify with. Do, do we find ourselves putting ourselves in the shoes of the farmer? And why does Paul use this illustration? For sure, back in the day, was a largely agrarian society. Timothy would have grasped this probably easier than we do even. But I think the point that Paul is trying to make is something that we can all agree on in just what we know about farming. Farming is hard work. Farmers don't get paid holidays. You never see a farmer who works a flex schedule. Yeah, I worked four on, three off. It worked out pretty good. Hey, the chickens lay some eggs. You got to go get the eggs. You can't say, I really don't feel inspired to get the eggs today. It doesn't work for a farmer. Oh, the cow needs to be fed? Oh, the crops need to be watered? Mm, just not feeling it today. I think I'll call in and get me a sick day. I think farmers have to die to get sick days. <laughs> they work hard. And I believe this is how Paul is, again, he's spurring Timothy on. He's encouraging him, you've got to be a worker, not just when it's convenient for you, but when it has to be done. I think that's the heart of this verse that many of us know, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. He says, preach the word, and you've got to be ready in season and out of season. Timothy, you can't just preach when you feel like it. You have to be ready, like a farmer. I think maybe a good example for some of us today would be the parent. If you have kids, I guarantee you've seen this. 
Your kid needs you. They got this homework thing they can't figure out. Or they got a relationship question they want to ask you. Or they hurt themselves and they need to be comforted, encouraged, something like that. It doesn't work if they come up and you go, ah, not really feeling it today. I don't really feel like being a parent. I don't feel especially inspired today. This isn't a good time for me. Good parents don't say that. Most parents I know, thank the Lord, they're like the farmer. They do the work when the work comes up because that's what we're supposed to do. This happened to us at home a couple weeks ago. This story looks bad for me. But (laughs) one of my kids threw up in the middle of the night. And I'm a pretty heavy sleeper. I actually didn't hear this. <laughs> Heard about it the next morning. If Christina hadn't been there, I guarantee you I would have woke up. But she was there, and she's a light sleeper. So one of our kids comes in. It's 2.30 in the morning. Hey, Mom, I threw up. What does Christina do? She pulls the covers over her head, throw a towel over it. I'll get it in the morning. Sleep on the floor. Is that what she says? No. <laughs> she gets up, and she cleans it up, and she does some laundry because she's a farmer. She's a worker. That's what we're supposed to do. And I think this is a great example for us as disciple makers. Because we got to get this. We can't just be disciple makers when it's convenient. We can't wait for the perfect time in our life to live our lives in front of others. We got to do it when the opportunity is there. We got to do it in season and out of season. Finally, let me close with this one because it's the most important one. Paul instructs Timothy if you're having a hard time remembering to be strong and endure hardships, if remembering the soldier and the athlete and the farmer isn't working for you, then do this. Remember Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 7 to 10, he says, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, he writes. He says, But the word of God is not imprisoned. It says, for this sake I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. And with that salvation, eternal glory. Paul says, I'm in prison. That's fine. You can't imprison the Word of God. Beautiful thought. He says, I can endure hardships because my Lord and Savior did. He died for your sins and my sins. He died so I can have a relationship with God. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. Paul says, he died so that I can live, and he's not dead. We need to have right theology about that. We need to understand that correctly. He died, but he's not dead. He rose again. So we could establish this kingdom that will have no end. Matt Gordon and I worked at VBS together this year, Vacation Bible School. And I remember on the last day, we had to do this skit. And it was a, it was a cute little skit. It was about how you make choices and how Jesus is with you there to, to guide you in the choices. And there's, you know, hundreds little kids up here in the front. And they were hard roles because they're non-speaking roles. Those are very hard roles. But, but Matt's was a little bit harder than mine because he had to play Jesus. Thinking it was the hair and the scraggly beard. Maybe he just comes off more Christ-like than I do. I don't know. But, but he got to play Jesus. And so we come in, we walk in amongst the kids, and then at the end of it, Matt's supposed to walk up on stage and pantomime that he's dying on the cross. And so we walk in and we're doing this skit and Matt comes up the steps, and he starts to go to the cross, and the little kid out here goes, No, Jesus, don't die! And it was, I mean, it was kind of cute. It was funny at the time. But then Matt and I were talking about it later, and we ended up praying for that kid. We prayed for all the kids that they'd understand that's part of the deal. That's something we need to understand. Jesus had to die in order for us to be able to have the relationship 
with Christ that we're supposed to have to, with God through Christ that we're supposed to have to. It's because of that fact, it's because Christ resurrected that Paul can explain to Timothy, hey, that's why I've endured these hardships in my life. It's for the sake of these people that I love so much so they can have a relationship with the Lord. And I don't know, I wasn't there, but I bet Paul is is just overjoyed as he's writing this. This is Paul who'd said before, it'd be better for me to go and be with you. I think Paul's at the end of his life and he's overjoyed because he knows even though I'm going to die, Jesus didn't stay dead. And I also think this is at the end of his life. He's remembering what a ride it's been as he discipled Timothy. How he met him and walked with him as a young guy. How Timothy proved faithful. He answered God's call in his life. He was, he was equipped and he was pastoring. And now Paul's left this legacy in Timothy. He leaves this work of entrusting faithful men to Timothy. And Paul knows, hey, my legacy doesn't stop here. It's going to continue on. And so that's the question that we have to answer. Will it continue on with us? Will we engage? Will we be a church of disciple makers? Can we use these methods that Paul used to pour into Timothy where we encourage people, we spur them on, we remind them that if you, if you really want to win, you've got to fight till the end. You've got to fight the good fight. Can we remind them to compete according to the rules and to discipline ourselves and strive and work like the farmer? Can we remember everything that Jesus has done for us? These are great questions. We get the privilege today of closing our service with communion, and so we're going to have that time to talk with God about it. Scripture's so clear. It says as we take communion, we examine our hearts, we confess our sins, we're right with the Lord. So if you're new with us, the communion elements are on the table around you. Ryan's going to come and he's going to play some music, and you're going to have the opportunity to do that, spend some time with the Lord. And I, I pray you'll be challenged about this, about these questions. Am I being faithful to be a disciple who makes disciples? Am I praying about and finding somebody to pour my life into, to walk along with them and guide them along the way? I pray we take that challenge real seriously as a church. Let me pray for the bread and the cup. Ryan's going to come. Father God, thanks for this opportunity to be together, to be with our friends, to be with family, to be a church family. God, I think you've got this huge mission for us. We're supposed to be disciples who make disciples. God, help us to learn from your word. Help us to learn from this example, the methods that Paul used as he encouraged Timothy. Can we come alongside people and encourage them in that way? God, we want to do that. And, and we don't want to leave a legacy for ourselves, Lord. God, we want to do it for you and for your glory because you're so worthy. God, as we take the bread and the cup, help us to be so transparent. God, you know our hearts anyway. God, we love you. We thank you for this time to worship. We just ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.